Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. This is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coast and islands will wait for his instruction. This is, what the, this is what God, the Lord, says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. In order to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. The past events have indeed happened. Now I, de- now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Terry. So we are back in Isaiah today, moving toward Christmas. Next week we'll be in either Luke or Revelation. I'm not sure which one. We'll see. I don't know. Uh, Depends on how we're feeling. (laughs) But today we're in Isaiah at this this prophecy of this servant to come. Uh, And we see here this promise of of a world, a new world, a world to come. Now, yesterday, we were on our way home from my brother's house last night, and my daughter, Maggie, who's eight, um, said, Dad, I have a question for you. And, and Beth and I, anytime Maggie says this, Beth and I kind of look at each other, and we're just kind of like, wait, I, well, what's going to come? Like, you know, an eight-year-old says that to you, you just have no idea uh, what the question is going to be. And so she said, I've been thinking about it, Dad, and how would it be, or, or what would it be like if there was no sickness in the world, if no one ever got sick with anything? Actually, at first she said, what if sickness was around, but it just didn't make people feel bad, <laughs> didn't make people sick? And I was like, well, then you wouldn't really be sick, right? There would be no sickness. And so she said, well, yeah, yeah. So what if there was no sickness in the world? And, you know, the great pastor father that I am, I was like, that's heaven, Maggie, and just kind of continued on. And so we, we talked about it for a little bit longer, though, um, and you know, it's, it's really hard for us to imagine a world without sickness. And, and as Maggie and I were talking, we said, well, Maggie, sickness, a world without sickness would be a world without sin. And she was kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> like, then I'm going to try never to sin again, so I'll never get sick. We're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It doesn't quite work like that, right? But sickness is in the world because of human sin. The world is broken because of human sin, because of the decisions that we made millennia ago and continue to make today. The decisions to ignore God, to look away from him, to pursue our own selves, to pursue our own agendas in the world. And these things brought about sin, and sin broke the world, which allowed for sickness to be a thing. And we are so conditioned by living in a sinful world, as we've been talking about for the past few weeks, 
We are so conditioned by living in a sinful world that we can't even imagine what a sinless world would be like. In fact, Maggie and I continued our conversation a little bit, and so we, we talked about what heaven might be like. And she said something about spilling paint. She was like, so if, you know, you were um, painting with, with something and you spilled some on your clothes, that's a mistake, but it's not sin. It's an accident, but it's not sin. And so we were, we were just trying to kind of imagine a sinless world where, you know what, an accident would ha- may happen, but it's not sinful. So how would you respond to that? Right? Your response to the spilled paint is what is sin or not, not the paint spilled itself. And so Maggie was like, well, yeah, I mean, I think if I, in heaven or in a sinless world, I would just kind of go with the flow. And then maybe I would just paint the rest of my pants and make them fun and a different color. And I wouldn't get mad and yell. And we were like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you got the idea, Maggie. Like, that, that seems to be what a sinless world would be like. Not a world without accidents. Not a world where nothing ever needed to be fixed but a world where all of our responses to those things would be righteous and holy and good. In a world where where our choices and our decisions and the things that we do would be perfect and holy and righteous, our world would be closer to being sinless. And of course, in that world, sickness wouldn't exist. Weather disasters wouldn't exist. Right? All the pain and toil and struggle that we have in our world wouldn't exist. But the fact is, we just we can't imagine what a sinless world would be like because we live in a sinful world. We live in a fallen, broken world. And so the very idea of what a sinless world might be like, a world with zero locks, a world with zero weapons, maybe you'd hunt, but you'd never have to hurt another person ever. You'd never have to defend yourself. You'd never have to lock anything away. You would never have to... Um, to fight or to struggle. You'd never have to be stressed about your relationships because no one would ever do anything hurtful to one another. And so many of the services and things that we take for granted as part of living in a sinful world simply wouldn't have to exist in a sinless world. And that's what the perfect world is like. That's what a sinless world is like. Not where people just kind of live up in the clouds and they're strumming harps and they're, they're singing with the angels Because honestly, that sounds terribly boring and awful to me. If I can't go off-roading in heaven, heaven is going to stink, man. If I can't enjoy the mountains and go swimming at the beach in heaven, man, heaven's going to be boring. Heaven is a place not where all of the things of the world are done away with, and so we just kind of sit and bask in God's presence on playing our harps on clouds every day. Heaven is a place where all of the joys of this world are amplified, and they're not harmed or diminished at all by human sin and brokenness. Where all of the pleasures and goods of this world are there. And they are so amplified because they are never ever diminished by the sinfulness of people or the brokenness that we experience now. That's what a sinful, sinless world looks like. And we can try to imagine it all day. But we just, we can't quite get there. But we long for that world. We long for that world where there is no pain, where there is no struggle, where there is no toil and no sickness, and we're not battling against the, the, the pressures of old age and the stresses of our relationships and the harm that we do to one another and the harm that the world does to us. That's the world that we long for. And the good news is that that world is coming. There is a future for that world. 
for the world where sin has no effect, sin has no reign, where sin is no longer a thing, where it is finally and completely defeated. That's what we're looking forward to. We have a desire for that world because that world exists. Because it will exist. Because we have the solid promise of our God that it's going to exist. And what God is saying to his people here in Isaiah 42 is that it's our mission to help bring about that world. He's reminding his people of what their mission is in the world here in Isaiah 42. So we're 42 chapters into Isaiah. We can't cover everything that's happened so far and everything that the prophet has been talking. But Isaiah, just like all the prophets of the Old Testament, is kind of a cycle of condemnation and praise, a cycle of judgment and praise and promise for God's people. Isaiah is looking at God's people and speaking the words of God, and he's pronouncing judgment over them for some of their actions, for some of the ways that they've lived, for the ways that they have oppressed the poor, the ways that they've failed to live up to God's standard, the ways that they've failed to be a light to the nations, the ways that they have not lived into God's purposes for them, just like we talked about last week. But then after those cycles of judgment always come promises of a future restoration, promises that God is going to rescue his people even from his own judgment, that God is going to bring them to to fullness. He's going to bring them to this place where they're able to fulfill the mission that he gave them. And then here in Isaiah 42, we have the first of what's called the servant songs. Now, we as Christians, we read back on this and we read the servant of Isaiah, and immediately we jump to Jesus. Immediately we read the servant of Isaiah. If you've ever read the servant songs before, if you're totally lost, then keep up, you'll, you'll, we'll get there. But if you've ever read Isaiah before and you've read about the servant in Isaiah, we immediately jump to Jesus and we assume that that's what it's talking about. But remember last week I was talking about prophecy in the Old Testament and how prophecy has to mean something to the people to whom it was delivered. And to the people who are listening to Isaiah or hearing this prophecy and they hear about the servant, their mind would not go to any one individual. Their minds wouldn't even go to Messiah. Their mind would go to the nation of Israel. And that's what Isaiah means first. And when God is pronouncing this this over his people, when he says, this is my servant, what Isaiah means and what the people hear is Israel. The servant is Israel. It's the people of God. It's the people who have been called out to God. What God is doing here in the first four verses of Isaiah 42 is reminding his people of what their purpose is in the world, of what it would look like if their nation never sinned, if their people didn't sin, what would they be doing? How would they be living? What would their purpose in the world be? And that's what Isaiah is drawing their attention to. He's saying essentially to the people of Judah, the people of Israel, hey, this is who you're supposed to be. You are the servant of God, and this is what you do in the world. So what does the servant do? Well, first, the servant possesses the spirit of God. In the Old Testament, it was the entire people of God that possessed the Spirit of God. We think of God's Holy Spirit as being this individual gift that God gives to followers of Jesus individually. And that's true. But God also gives His Spirit to His people collectively, as a body. And within the nation of Israel and the nations of Judah, the Spirit of God was the possession of all the people, of the entire nation. God worked through His nation through his collected people, 
through this family that he had called. And so these are the people who are possessed of the Spirit of God. And they will bring justice to the nations. That's the purpose of the Spirit living in the people of Israel, is to bring justice to the nations. That is, to stand against the sin and injustice of all the other nations. Israel is supposed to be the holy nation, the ones who follow God, the ones who live according to God's purposes, and therefore are marked out and different from the rest of the world. But their purpose is not just to be this holy huddle that doesn't allow anybody else in. Their purpose is to be a light to those nations, to show them what it is to be a just people, to be a just nation, to be a nation where sin does not have the last word. And so they're to, be, to bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. Now, this is a cry of pain and of anguish. These are people who are not supposed to experience this kind of relational pain that we bring to our relationships, who aren't meant to hurt one another. They're not loud and ambitious and, and harsh on people. They won't break the bruised reed or put out the smoldering wick. They're going to be a people who heal one another, who support one another when they're struggling. That's what a bruised reed and a smoldering wick are. These are enfeebled. They're weak. They've been harmed. A bruised reed has been hurt. A smoldering wick has its fire going out. But these are to be a people who lift up the bruised reed, who tie it off, who bring it strength again, who inflame the smoldering wick and bring power back into the fire. They will faithfully bring justice. The servant will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. This is God's dream for his people. This is God's dream for Israel. The servant of Isaiah 42 is nothing less than Israel, the very people of God. At least in the original hearing. In the original writing, that's what Isaiah intends, and that's what he intends God's people to hear. That this is not just some person afar off who is going to one day bring hope, but in the meantime, you're just going to slog away and you're going to suffer. This is God reminding his people, if sin didn't reign among you, this is what you'd be like. You would bring justice to the nations. You would heal the broken. You would inflame those who are petering out. You would bring peace to the world. And you wouldn't even get discouraged in your mission to bring peace to the world. You would continue on. You would do it until the whole world understood what it's like to live under the reign and rule of your good God. So this isn't necessarily about one person or about Messiah or about Jesus at first. This is about the people of God and their purpose in the world. And if you doubt that, all you got to do is read the next verses, because verses 5 through 9 just restate all of that and apply it directly to Israel. Right? Isaiah comes and says, this is what God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it, this is what he says. And he says, I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations, in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. See, here in these verses, God is speaking to the nation, and he's restating everything that he said the servant would do back in verses 1 through 4. 
And so he's making it explicit, like, hey guys, in case you didn't understand that you are the servant I was talking about, let me just restate it for you. Let me make it plain for you. This is what I want you to do. This is your job. This is your role. This is why I called you out as a people. So you would be a light to the nations. So you would bring justice to the nations. So you would basically, you would destroy the prison systems because no one would be committing crimes. You would bring people out of the prisoners, uh, out of the prisons from the dungeons. You would bring out those who are sitting in darkness from the prison house. You would open blind eyes. You would be the source of healing and justice for the nations. This is God's cry to his people. This is what I want you for. This is why I called you out. This is why I made you. This is who you're supposed to be. You are the ones who bring heaven to earth. Because you have my presence with you. Because you have my spirit in you. Because you've been empowered by me to live my way to show the world how good it would be if they would submit to me. If they would put themselves under my leadership. This is God's cry to his people. It's a reminder and a cry. Be who I've called you to be. Be who I want you to be. But it's evident in the course of the history of Israel that they're never that. The people of God, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they they never live up to this mission. They try sometimes, and other times they don't so much. And over the course of generations, they fail to live up to this mission of God. They do break the bruised reed. They put out the smoldering wick. In fact, at the time that Isaiah is writing to these people, at the time that Isaiah is talking to these people, they are the bruised reed. They are the smoldering wick. They're wondering, how in the world can we be a light to the nations when we are suffering ourselves? When our leadership oppresses us? When the lenders extort us? When the taskmasters whip our backs? How can we be this people when we suffer in this way? We are the bruised reeds right now. We are the smoldering wicks, God. How can we be the source of healing for the nations when we need healing ourselves? And the leadership of the nation is saying, God, we don't really need you. We can rely on our military alliances. We can rely on the other nations around us. We can rely on our own strength and power. We don't need God. And so the nation is torn between a leadership that denies their need for God and a people who are so oppressed and so harmed and so hurt by the leadership that they can't possibly rise up. These are the people that Isaiah is talking to. And when Jesus comes on the scene, the situation is exactly the same. 800 years later, when Jesus is on the scene and he's walking among the people of Israel and he's, he's teaching the people and he's gathering this group, the situation is precisely the same. The leadership in Jerusalem is in league with the Roman oppressors and the people are suffering. They're bruised reeds and they're smoldering wicks and they feel like they're being put out and broken all the time by the leadership in Jerusalem and by the Roman Empire. They're suffering And they're struggling. And Jesus comes to them as God in the flesh. 
And if, if some of our images of God from the Old Testament were to hold true, if some of the, the images that some of us have of who God is in the Old Testament, of this, this taskmaster, terrible dad who just wants to whip you into shape and force you into being the person he wants you to be and guilt you and shame you and break you until you obey him, if that image of God held true, then when Jesus came to the earth, he would be breaking all the reeds. He would put out all the fires. Jesus would come in judgment and tear his people down. But in Matthew 12, we read this episode with Jesus. Starting in verse 9, Jesus has is, is been traveling through Galilee. He's been traveling through uh, the, the Holy Land. And he's been talking in synagogues and teaching and preaching and gathering a following. And in verse 9, we read that Jesus, moving on from there, the place he last was, moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, that is the religious leadership, asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus replied to them, who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Here Matthew is looking to Jesus, who has come to lead his people. And he's come, and, and Jesus has just been in a synagogue, the center of worship, in the, in the local towns, and he's been teaching, and he's healed this man on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leadership, the, the religious leadership, looks at Jesus, and, and they get caught. Because they're like, Jesus, you, you, can't, you can't do this. You can't heal on the Sabbath. That's, that's kind of against the rules, Jesus. You're doing work if you're healing somebody on the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus, you know, traps them with this parable. And says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you had a sheep, which was of so much value to you, then on the Sabbath it fell in a pit, you'd go save that sheep, right? And Jesus is like, how much more valuable is this person here? And the, Jewish, the religious leaders, they're, they're caught in their own game. Right? They're caught in their own question. They're valuing this guy less than sheep. And that's not too much, that's not too hard to fathom. It's not really too hard to think that these people might value, their, value a sheep more than they do a certain kind of person. Because I'll promise you, everybody in this room has done the exact same thing. Right? Let's not stand in judgment over the religious leaders here. Because every single one of us here has done the same thing with someone. We have valued our stuff. We have valued our things. We have valued our vehicles. 
We valued our time. We valued our homes. We valued our tables more than we have valued certain people in our lives. There are people in our lives who mean less to us than our dogs. And if you deny that, you're lying. I know you're lying because I'm a human just like you. And I know that every single one of us in this room would say, no, I'd never value this over another person. And yet there are people in your lives who you have consistently maintained grudges with and denied personhood and rejected and failed to follow up with and allowed to live in hurt. There are people you have removed from your lives entirely with no chance of reconciliation because they offended you in some way. And when we do that, we value our own comfort, our own belongings, our own things more than we do those human beings. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is, there is nothing on this earth more valuable than your brother or sister that you can see. There's nothing on this earth more valuable than the person in front of you, made in the image of God, meant for you to love and to care for and to build up. These bruised reeds and smoldering wicks are human beings that must mean more to you and me than the stuff that we value so much. Now, there will be relationships in our lives that there's just no hope for reconciliation. There will be relationships in our lives that have been so painful, so hurtful, so abusive that we must maintain distance from those. I get that. And I want to honor that. But to the extent that it depends on us, to the extent that we can pursue healing with people in a healthy way with them, and we don't, we value our comfort and things more than we value those people. And here Jesus is drawing attention to that, to these religious leaders who have valued the sheep more than they have the human being, who have valued their rules for the Sabbath more than they have the suffering people. And we see the illustration in these verses of exactly the same situation that existed in Isaiah's day, where the leadership is oppressing the people, and the people are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, longing for God's redemption. And so Matthew can then draw attention to this passage from Isaiah. He can say Jesus withdrew and he healed the people because Jesus saw their value. He saw their worth and instead of breaking these reeds and putting out these wicks, Jesus is healing them. He's reigniting them. He's giving them value. Jesus is doing what Israel always was intended to do. Jesus comes, and when he comes as the king of Israel, he's, he's not just one man, he's not just one person, he is the representative of the entire nation. Jesus is Israel come. Jesus is who Israel was always intended to be. When Jesus comes, he fulfills everything that Israel was supposed to be. He fulfills all those intents and promises of God that God wanted for his people. And Jesus can do this because he is here without sin. There's nothing in him that's preventing him from following God wholly. There's nothing in him that prevents him from pursuing God and obeying him completely. And so Jesus comes 
as the one who heals the reeds, who inflames the wicks, who brings sight to the blind. Jesus comes as the one who truly brings justice to the nations, to everybody. And in his life, he, he does this. I mean, we see this example in Matthew here. In his life, he's healing the reeds. In his life, he is bringing life to others. In his life, he is pursuing justice for the oppressed. In his life and in his way of life, Jesus is doing all that Israel was supposed to do. Unfortunately, Joe, Jesus was one man. Jesus was one human being. And it may sound like blasphemy. But Jesus alone cannot do what God intended for Israel to do. Jesus alone cannot do what God intended for the whole people of God to do. Jesus, God in the flesh, powerful as he is, needs people. He needs his followers. He needs his church to accomplish his mission. Jesus says as much in John chapters 14 to 17. When he promises the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying to his followers there, hey guys, I got to go away. But it's good that I do because when I do, I can send you my spirit. And through you, you guys can do greater things than I'm doing now. Jesus alone can't accomplish the mission. Jesus needs a people. But in order for us to be the people that he needs, in order for for Jesus' followers to be the kind of people who can fulfill the mission, who can become the servant of God, who can do what Israel was always intended to do, we have to have God's Spirit living within us. And in order for that, we've got to get rid of the sin within us. And here we reach a dilemma, because we can't. Right? Jesus could come and he could fulfill the mission of the servant. He could be what Israel was always meant to be because he had no sin. Because there was nothing separating him from God. There was nothing standing in the way of his relationship with God. He could be everything that God intended Israel to be because he was without sin. But when Jesus calls us to follow him, we come as sinners. We come with all the stuff that separates us from God and from one another. We come with all those things that break our relationships and break us from one another. We can't be the servant We can't do what Israel was intended to do. We can't do as Jesus did because of our sin. And so something's got to give. There's got to be some way that Jesus can remove our sins so that we can be the servant of God. So that we can fulfill Israel's mission. So we can do as Jesus did. Empowered by his Holy Spirit. There's got to be something that can be done. And so Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus knows that we can't fulfill the mission unless he does something about our sin. God knows that we can't do what Israel was supposed to do. We can't do what Jesus did. We can't be the servant unless our sin is dealt with. And so Jesus the one who would not break the bruised reed, the one who would not put out the smoldering wick, was broken and put out for us. Jesus had his reed broken, had his fire put out for us. He who would heal was broken.
He who would bring life tasted death. He who didn't deserve death or punishment would instead take our punishment and death so that we could be free from our sin. So that we could have our sin dealt with and be ready to receive the Holy Spirit of God living within us. He took the penalty of our sin and was broken and snuffed out for us so that we could become vessels of God's Holy Spirit, so that we could do what he did in his life, so that we could be the servant of God as Israel was always intended to be. And so when we look at this passage from Isaiah and we read these stories of the servant who will come to redeem the world, and when we look to Matthew here, In chapter 12, and we read about how Matthew looks to Jesus and says, here is the servant who has come. We cannot stop at Jesus. We have to see ourselves in the servant song. If we are followers of Jesus who have had our sin dealt with upon the cross, who have received God's Holy Spirit living within us, then we have to own that we are now the servant of God. We are the ones who are called to heal the bruised reeds and to inflame the smoldering wicks and to bring sight to the blind, to be justice to the nations. We have to own that we now have received that mission of Israel to be the servant of God on earth, to be Jesus walking around. We are Jesus with skin on. We are Jesus in the flesh. We are the ones who are now to be the servant of God on the earth, bringing his good news to everyone everywhere, to bring the healing that he brings, to bring the justice that he brings until the day that the true servant returns. And makes the world into that sinless paradise that we desperately long for. When we read these servant songs, we must see Jesus in them. But if we stop at just seeing Jesus in them, we will assume that that was Jesus' mission. And my mission is just to have my sins forgiven so I can go to heaven one day. When we read these servant songs, when we read about the mission of Israel, we have to see Jesus in them and then go one step further and see ourselves as his followers in them. To own and receive the mission that we've been given. Our sins were forgiven not just so we could go to heaven and enjoy God's presence one day. Our sins were forgiven so we could be the servants of God. So we could be little Jesuses everywhere we go. After all, that's what Christian means. God is calling you and me to be that light to the world. God is calling you and me to own who we are in Jesus, to become like him so that we can fulfill this mission, so we can bring heaven to bear on earth, so that we can be the agents by which God makes all things new, to lay everything that we have and everything that we do and everything that we are at the service of God, to ask God, every day, how can I glorify you with my money and my time and my job? How can I glorify you 
with the words that I speak and in the relationships that I hold? How can I glorify you in the checkout counter at the grocery store? How can I glorify you as I discipline my children? How can I glorify you as I seek reconciliation and restoration with that person who I've been estranged from? How can I glorify you as I feed the hungry? How can I glorify you, Lord, with everything that I am? That's what it means to be the servant of God. Jesus laid down his life for us to empower us to lay down our lives for others. To recognize that the brother or sister, that the person next to us, that the suffering person in our community is worth far more than our comfort or things or ambition. We who have had our sin dealt with on the cross. We who come to the Savior, the King, the Lord, the servant, the reed that was broken, the wick that was snuffed out. We who come to him come empty-handed. And we say, Lord, anything that I am and everything that I have is yours, not mine. It is here for your service. I am the servant of the Lord. I am the servant of God. I am the servant of Christ. Make this world heaven through me. God, bring heaven to bear through me. God, bring heaven on earth through my life. I am simply a bruised reed. I am a smoldering wick. But when the Spirit of God lights upon me, I become a raging fire. I become a strong tree. I become everything that I am not in myself for the sake of the world around me. And it is all because of our Savior whose reed was broken and whose fire was snuffed out. And that's what we celebrate when we come to the table. That's what we celebrate when we partake of this family meal for the people of God. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.